It was big news in Havana when they heard President Obama was relaxing American sanctions against Cuba. The Cubans were literally, literally hugging each other on the street. Passers-by when the news broke and the bells tolled probably for the first time since the revolution. Christopher P. Baker tells us why the new American rules are making a difference that more than 50 years of embargo never could. And a very important consideration is that if we ease up on Cuba, it can feel less pressure and can ease up itself. And that's exactly what I think we are beginning to see. And in the south of Spain, colorful processions mark the days before Easter, when even the church statues parade around town. You don't know what's happening, but everybody's silent. Parade, it's coming, and there it is. It's just like Jesus and you. Holy Week in Seville and Americans in Cuba. It's just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The traditions for the week leading up to Easter are some of the most important ones of the year in the south of Spain. Coming up on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll learn why Andalusians are crowding the streets of Seville this time of year and hear about the emotional connection they have with centuries-old religious processions for Palm Sunday and Holy Week. Recent news out of Washington got Americans buzzing about making this the year to finally visit Cuba. The policy changes that President Obama announced the week before Christmas will establish diplomatic relations between the U.S. and Cuba. And it'll make it easier for more people to visit Cuba and bring back souvenirs. But Americans are not yet free to travel to Cuba on their own. Joining us to explain what the new provisions mean and to take your calls is Cuba travel expert Christopher P. Baker. Christopher authors guidebooks to Cuba, among other titles. He's just back from Havana, and we're glad to have him with us again on Travel with Rick Steves. Chris, thanks for joining us. Rick, it's always a pleasure to be with you. So you've been back to Cuba twice since Obama made this uh, big news kind of announcement for travelers to Cuba. What actually does his announcement mean to travelers to Cuba? Well, for your average citizen, it really doesn't change anything, really, because there are 12 categories of individuals who are licensed to go. It simply made it easier for them to go. Those who are licensed to travel, it's easier to travel around. You can use your credit cards for the first time from the USA. You can get travel insurance, and you can you can travel to Cuba more easily. But your average individual is still relegated to going on a people-to-people group tour if they want to go legally. Okay, so more people aren't allowed to go now. It's just if you were allowed to go because you made one of the 12 permissible categories, now it's easier to do it, and you can bring home $100 worth of cigars. And that's exactly right. <laughs> uh, $400 worth of goods, and that's new because it was zero until uh, the new regulations, and of course, $100 of cigars and rums. Now, do I understand, Chris, that Cuba really doesn't care? They'll let anybody come in, Canadians, Mexicans, Germans, Americans. It's our government that has restrictions on our citizens for going to Cuba. That's absolutely right. And if you look at it um, that way, Raul Castro, three years ago, lifted all the travel restrictions for Cubans. So in that regard, it's kind of ironic that these days it's easier for a Cuban to travel if they can get a visa to the States than an American wanting to go to Cuba. So now Cuba's saying, come on in to anybody. And if you looked at our laws from a lawyer's point of view, do I understand that technically it's legal to visit, but we have some kind of an embargo on them? You can't trade with the enemy, so it's illegal to spend money there. <laughs> That's absolutely right. In fact, we're using the 1917 Trading with the Enemy Act from hmm. World War I to regulate this. Supreme Court has said that the U.S. government cannot restrict um, U.S. citizens' right to travel. So we stop them from trading. So there's these 12 different categories, like if you're a professor or a doctor or a diplomat or something like that. Of these 12 categories that let you fly from the United States to Cuba legally, is joining a people-to-people trip the easiest way for the average Joe traveler to go to Cuba? Well, it's still the only way. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are plenty of journalists, and they can now go more freely. And students, of course, is another category. The big difference is that these 12 categories no longer need to actually ask for a license from Treasury Department. In essence, they're pre-authorized to go. But you correctly stated, not for recreation, not for tourism, etc. Mm-hmm. But your average citizen, every U.S. citizen, can join a licensed people-to-people group. What distinguishes a, if I was just going to go to the Yucatan and look around, and a people-to-people legal trip to Cuba, how would it be different? Your, your motorcycle tours that you lead, for instance, what makes them people-to-people? 
Well, the legal requirement is that we have to be fully engaged with Cubans during the day-to-day programs, which means that since the itineraries are based around people I know, we have fascinating encounters with Hmm. um, Cubans on a daily basis. And really, it's a culturally enriching program, much more so than you would have if you went on your own. And that's the mark of a good trip is to have people to people. So our government is almost saying you can't go to Cuba unless you're really going to meet the people and have this kind of cultural exchange. You can't just do it on your own. You've got to hire an organization that's gone through the hoops and and can make this legal. You write in your book that about 2 million visitors go to Cuba per year. Where are the majority of these visitors going to Cuba from? Who goes to Cuba? It actually, this last year, topped three million. Three million. Canadians are number one. That's almost one-third of the, uh, the visitors. And, of course, they're going for the beaches. They're, right. they're the snowbirds. Number two, interestingly enough, is the United Kingdom. Huh. Uh, they came out of nowhere a decade ago, thanks to Sir Richard Branson and his daily flights um, to Havana from England. Uh, and then it's the French, the Germans, etc. But I should add, because they're not included in the three million tourist official figures, and that is that Americans are number two, and that includes 100,000 people who participated in people-to-people programs last year. What would you guess the American numbers are from people who, and I know you don't have exact statistics on this, but just your ballpark guess, how many people go legally from the United States, and how many people would go illegally through another country in a way that our government doesn't know? Well, we do know that 400,000 Americans visited last year. Three quarters of those are Cuban-Americans. The rest are on people-to-people programs. It's been many, many years since the Cuban government released statistics on illegal U.S. arrivals. It used to be 30,000, but that was many years ago before the people-to-people programs drained off much of the the Mm -hmm. steam of of individuals wanting to go to Cuba. I'm going to guess it's probably down now to about 15,000. But one other thing about the regulations, there was a message in it, and that is essentially that Treasury is probably no longer going to have the same kind of oversight of the regulations as before. And so people who want to go illegally are probably going to have an easier time. Because I understand tens of thousands of people have gone illegally through Canada and Mexico, and there's actually organizations that help Americans do this. And Cuba, understandably, uh, doesn't stamp your passport, so there's no indication on your passport that you've been there. But Well, you... that's no longer true. They, they actually do stamp passports, and they've been doing it for everybody for the past couple of years. Oh, they do. So if you now, go there through days, yeah. Yucatan or Vancouver, B.C., you're going to have a stamp on your passport. Yes. Uh, most of the people that I have talked to recently who have requested that the Cubans not stamp their passport have had their passports stamped. Ooh. And I get my passport stamped every time these days. No questions asked, whereas before I didn't, even when I was going in legally, as I've always done under a license. Now, if somebody did want to go in through Mexico, let's say you're just traveling around in Mexico and you get this little uh, desire to fly over to Cuba and there's fights all the time, you risk then technically, a, what, a $55,000 fine, but it's generally much less. And then technically, if you ask for a hearing, they drop it all together. Well, in a worst-case scenario, yeah, it's 55000 or 65000 The reality is those individuals who have been hit up by Treasury are being hit up for 7500 But under the Obama administration, very, very few people are now Mm. getting what's called a letter of intent to levy a fly. Okay. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher P. Baker, and he writes The Moon Handbook to Cuba. Chris mentioned they just stopped the press for the new 2015 edition, and it is right up to date with all of the the new fine points of the rules on how Americans can go legally to Cuba. Chris, I just took a cruise around the Caribbean, and it was a beautiful cruise, but I frankly found the sightseeing to be kind of thin. If I'm thinking of going to Cuba, people always talk about cigars and vintage cars and political murals and that sort of thing, but Is it worth the bother from a cultural point of view? What do you find there that makes it worth the trouble to go to Cuba? Oh, this place is absolutely fascinating. Imagine it's been uh, five decades in in a sense of time warp in which the door slammed shut, very little new architecture. What you've got is fantastic old architecture, much of it derelict. You mentioned the old cars. My God, they're still running down the road. One of the Mm. things we do on the people-to-people programs is take them to a car mechanics, a Harley-Davidson mechanics workshop. That's real people to people. That's, uh, you're not going to get that in Jamaica, etc. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there's the music and the dance. I mean, they're culturally 
so fascinating. They're very well educated, but the culture is profound. A number of hit songs, salsa, son, etc., coming out of Cuba is remarkable, but also ballet, theater programs, etc. They're amongst the most culturally profound people in the Caribbean. When you travel there, regardless of how you're going, I understand the welcome is warm and there's plenty of opportunities for people to people. When you consider that in combination with the time work dimension of it all, just walking down the street must be packed with memories and surprises and mystery. Oh, absolutely. I call it a magical mystery tour. It's a real kaleidoscope of neck craning <laughs> sights <laughs> and experiences. It's surreal, and this is something that is very hard to describe to people. It's something one experiences. One of the unique things that I've found about Cuba, and remember, you know, as three decades as a full-time travel journalist, I've been all over the world, but something unique about Cuba is the degree to which almost every individual who goes to Cuba longs to return, and they say that they're really carrying Cuba back in their heart and soul. Mm. Other destinations, people obviously say, well, yeah. it was beautiful, I had a fantastic time. But it's, been but it's not that, that yeah. often you hear this kind of... No, I hear, I hear that so consistently with Cuba. There, It's one of those destinations where it really does find a little place in your heart. And clearly, Chris, you've been going there and, and passionate about it for decades and, and sharing it through all your guidebooks and your tours. Are you concerned with the changes that are coming? And I would imagine changes are coming, even more than what Obama just announced in the near future. Are you afraid that suddenly Cuba's going to not be what it used to be and it's going to lose that charm when it loses well, its I isolation? Well, I think um, long term, that's certainly possible. I mean, when the day that McDonald's opens in Cuba is the day for me to look for another destination. Mm. Uh, but I don't think it's going to happen anytime soon. Uh, firstly, Cuba itself is going to be pacing the development of tourism. They're already maxed out in terms of hotel rooms. Mm -hmm. um, the most important thing right now, I think, is the changes that are going on within Cuba, and that gets less oppressed than Obama's changes to the regulations, and that is the new economic opportunities that Raul Castro has been permitting as they're beginning to privatize. And this is having a dramatic impact, and it's having a dramatic impact in combination with the large amount of money, as much as $3 billion last year, that came from Miami to family in Cuba. Hmm. It is helping fuel the new private enterprise, but it's also beginning to be displayed in a new sense of materialism, which I'd never witnessed before for the sake of it, and the evolution of a middle class, which is good, of course, but also of distinctions between the have-nots and the haves, which is part of what the revolution tried to break down, of course. Christopher P. Baker is our guide to Cuba right now, and he's taking your calls next at 877-333-7425. He's here to help us navigate what's changed and what's on the horizon with the relaxation of American restrictions on travel and business in Cuba. Later in the hour, a local guide from Seville tells us about the colorful traditions that lead up to Easter in the Andalusian region of southern Spain. This is your passport for weekly adventure around the world. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone believes that an adventurous spirit and some basic language skills make all the difference when connecting with someone from another culture. Now available as a smartphone and tablet app. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Ever since the news broke in December that President Obama was ordering a change on U.S. restrictions for travel and commerce with Cuba, a lot of excitement and a lot of misinformation has been going around. So we've got Cuba travel expert Christopher P. Baker with us right now on Travel with Rick Steves to take your calls about Cuba. 
Our number is 877-333-7425. Wayne's calling from Indianapolis. Wayne, thanks for your call. Well, thank you, Rick. Yeah, do you have a comment for Chris? Yeah, I understand there's many complex issues to be resolved before regular travel to Cuba can commence, but I had understood that through the news media that Raul Castro had demanded compensation for money lost from the U.S. boycott over the years. And, and along with that, there's a number of uh, lawsuits that have been filed in the United States demanding compensation for property and ownings taken over by the communists. These seem like complex issues that might have to be resolved before tourism can open up. Absolutely correct. Uh, you're spot on there, and this is going to be a long, long road that the diplomats are going to have to walk down to get these things resolved. There's nothing new in these claims have been on on the books, if you will, for a long time. But I saw in the resolution of the Alan Gross and the Cuban spies issue, which brought us to the point of Obama's relaxation of the regulations, an example of how to go forward. I think there's going to have to be a wash at the end. Cuba's going to have to say, okay, we cancel our claims, and likewise from the U.S. side. That's the only way forward. Hmm. In Guantanamo Bay, one other thing. Guantanamo Bay, would that have to be resolved? I know there's a a lot of... uh controversy there. We have a lot of complex issues. Guantanamo is, of course, a very important one, especially for the Cubans, more so for the Cubans and the Americans, and uh, that will be part of the long-term discussion. I don't think it's a priority right now, and hopefully the reestablishment of diplomatic relations will not be, will be able to go forward before we can get to the Guantanamo issue. It'll be interesting to pay attention. Thanks for your call, Wayne. Thank you, Rick. Okay, bye now. Mercedes is calling in from New York City. Mercedes, thanks for your call. Hello. Um, I'm a Cuban-American. I was born in Cuba, uh, but I'm an American citizen. I've never returned, but I would really like to visit. Is the process the same for Cuban-Americans? They've been allowed to go in the past, but I'm not sure now under Obama's new policy if the rules have changed. Well, firstly, Mercedes, I'd love to welcome you to one of my tours. There is nothing that puts a smile on my face so much as when we have Cuban-Americans participate. And the very first thing I ensure we do on that first day in Havana is take them to the house where they grew up and were born, or their family property. It's a catharsis, and they add so much to our programs. But vis-a-vis your question, yes, there is specific regulations vis-a-vis your your visa or your passport from the Cuban side. It's not a, a difficulty at all. And from our perspective, Obama lifted the restrictions on Cuban Americans that Bush had put in place, and you are free to go anytime you wish, as frequently as you wish, as a Cuban American. Do you know if I can travel with my American passport? Um, it would depend on the date at which you were born or left Cuba. I think 1967, there's a, a tipping point there as to whether you need a Cuban passport or not. Correct, because I have friends who have traveled and they've needed to get a separate Cuban passport, even though they're American citizens. Right, and it would depend on the date in which you were born or left Cuba. But um, we have many Cubans traveling with us all the time, and it's not really a problem, it's just... You can't, you know, travel next week if you do need to go through that process. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for taking my question. Thanks for your call, Mercedes. So, Chris, do I understand, you know, like in Mercedes' case, uh, she would have had a bed one of those 12 categories before, and with Obama's announcement, it's just simplified the red tape. Everybody just, you you qualify, great, you're just fine. And they don't need to go through different um, processes. With regard to the Cuban-Americans, it's a couple of years ago, actually, that Obama lifted all the restrictions on Cuban-Americans. They've been free for a couple of years to mm-hmm. go to and fro. What uh, the changes were vis-a-vis Cuban-Americans this time around was that uh, further lifting of limits on the amount of money that could be sent, for example. And indeed, that this is interesting, that's true of all U.S. citizens. Anybody can now send up to $2,000 every three months to Cubans in Cuba oh, so people, in support of private enterprise. But were people free to send money home to their relatives in Cuba throughout uh, yes. past years? That's yes. no problem. Because I understand yes. in but many... There, there had been limits on the amount of money. Part of the new uh, the change is that credit cards are okay in Cuba. I remember when I went to Iran, we've got a similar economic embargo with them. And, and you know, you can't spend money there. You, you can't use your credit card in in Iran, but you could take in cash. Now, credit cards are okay in Cuba, 
but it's probably, you can't just snap your finger and say, okay, ATM's everywhere. There's probably going to be a lag before it actually does function, and travelers are probably still well-advised to bring in cash, or, or what do you advise for just getting your spending money while you're in Cuba? I would definitely take as much cash as you think you need to survive the whole time, even if you want to try and use your credit cards. MasterCard and American Express have already announced that they will begin to process cards in Cuba. However, you know, there are reciprocal arrangements that need to be made. We need to make sure that the financial institutions are able to function between the two countries. There are plenty of ATMs uh, in Cuba, and they don't always work well. But I'd say the the most important thing is, do you want to pay the 11.25% surcharge that Cuba itself applies to using a credit card? Oh, my goodness. So now, when you do your tours <laughs> in Cuba, you've got a lot of people and a lot of expenses to keep your tour going. Do you personally use an ATM to get your Cuban cash, or do you bring everything in from the States in hard dollars? Uh, Rick, it's always in flux. You know, until last year, running these programs, we had to take a lot (laughs) of cash in because we use primarily private restaurants. That's where the best food is, and we want to support the private economy. These days, we're almost exclusively using private restaurants, but we no longer need to take the cash because... As of this year, the Cuban government itself, the touristic institutions run by the state, are happy to prepay the private restaurants to book them, etc. They couldn't do so before because the state didn't really want to be involved with private business. And now we can just wire, I'm talking about the company, National Geographic or Modern Discovery, just wires the money legally to Havana and it's mm. all taken care. Isn't it beautiful? Maybe I hope I'm not just naive in this respect, but how... If you give people a little wiggle room and a little patience, things do evolve and mellow out over time. And Cuba is moving to normalization of travel and and everything that will follow from that. Yeah, and a very important consideration is that if we ease up on Cuba, it can feel less pressure and can ease up itself. And that's exactly what I think we are beginning to see. And I think that's what Obama's probably thinking, too, is that this is, uh, regardless of your short-term agenda, I think people want the same thing in the long term, and there's just different ways to get it, and we're going to have more back and forth, and there's going to be less fear, more empathy, and uh, I hope progress. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Christopher P. Baker. His guidebook is The Moon Handbook to Cuba, and he has a new book out just on Havana, also published by Moon. Chris, when you think about Havana, 2.2 million people, it just seems like a movie set with all the, the <laughs> sensual and surreal kind of dark corners and the time warp intrigue that you were talking about, crusty political art that's been up there for years, and uh, museums that give you a little bit of uh, revisionist history. Can you just tell us uh, what you find attractive about Havana? I think you just painted the portrait I wanted <laughs> to paint. <laughs> well, let's add those cars. You can't get away from them. 25% of all the cars running around Havana are pre-revolutionary. When was the last time you saw an Edsel? Wow. Um, what was, what year was the revolution? Through, What's pure, pre-revolutionary? Uh, 59. 1959. And the Edsel, of course, went out of business in 58. Whoa. But you see Edsels all the time. So there's all these old cars. There's the incredible architecture, the modernist, Art Deco, Beaux-Art, Art Nouveau architecture, all there looking very time war. And as you said, there's the hot point and singer advertising that's faded because it's six decades old. Mm. You know, I like going to places that are a little bit edgy politically because I like political art. And I also like to go into museums and palaces and see history that is twisted for the own propaganda purposes of whoever's you know sponsoring that museum. What is it like going to museums and palaces in Havana if you are a, a skeptic about the way they spin their history? Oh, sure. Well, uh, in, you're going to find that. Of course, the Cuban government itself, of course, wants to put a spin on things, as all governments do. But we can't lose sight of the degree, the, the breadth, the depth of the private art world It's incredible, and you see a lot of criticism, and you see a lot of love and affection expressed both for the revolution and for Cuba as a nation, Mm -hmm. etc., and the culture. So it's not all one-sided. It's absolutely fallacious to believe an impression that the Cuban state runs all the museums Mm. and the art galleries and whatnot. It's much more expressive than that. You know, it's nice that the culture is so strong that it can survive the... uh uh, short-term ideological you know, effects of its current regime. Oh, absolutely. And one of the important things that I love about Cuba is the sense of community at every level. Mm. And on the people-to-people programs, we get involved with community. We go to a place called Moraliando, for example, in Havana, where the community has been painting 
murals, but has now evolved these workshops across the spectrum, even movie making these days, for children as a way of bringing this community out of the effects of social problems that have been affecting it for many years and really developing, evolving the community, the community spirit. And it's just a magnificent example. And it's one of hundreds in Havana like this. Christopher P. Baker is probably the foremost expert on travel to Cuba in the USA, having made more than 100 trips to the island. He authors the Moon Handbooks to Cuba and to Havana and the National Geographic Traveler Guide to Cuba. Chris also leads people-to-people tours in Cuba, including taking Americans around the island on motorcycles. There's more information on his website, ChristopherPBaker.com. Chris, our listeners in Canada and elsewhere outside the United States don't have to worry about travel restrictions from the American embargo. But we've had an embargo in place now for decades because there's still a segment of the American public and the politicians that they vote for that remains antagonistic towards Cuba, even 55 years after the revolution. What's motivating these Americans to be so anti-Cuba? We need to go to the studies that have recently been done to see what the mood across the the states is. And uh, there's one that came out uh, a month ago or so regarding how many Americans want to see the end of the embargo and how many want to keep it. There's about 68% wanted to do away with it. Well, that still leaves 32% who want to keep it. And the question is, why on earth would they want to keep it? And, of course, it reflects what you're suggesting here, that there's been a kind of almost propagandist perspective of, well, this is a wicked communist nation, and, of course, the Cubans are the ones who suffer from the embargo. I've spent 20-odd years traveling there, and I can tell you that's the case. The Cubans themselves will tell you that. And so there's this naive perspective. But the more important thing is that two-thirds of Americans want the embargo ended, and let's get on with normalized relations. And, yes, you're absolutely right, Cubans themselves, who would criticize the embargo, love Americans. So, Chris, do you think when when Castro dies, the air that inflates this big balloon of this uh, sort of socialist culture would just be let out? Or will there be inertia because of the people and their passion for their communities and their, you know, their social sensibilities? Well, had um, Fidel died in 2006 when he was taken seriously ill, it may have been a different um, response, but Cubans have witnessed him aging and they've seen his power dissipate. Raul is the man, Raul's men are in power, etc., and we have transitioned. And very, very importantly, ever since Raul took over, there hasn't been a single anti-U.S. demonstration in mm. Havana, which was the, the almost daily bread for Fidel, right. because they're two different personalities, and Raul understands that the issues really that need to be resolved are trying to make a screwed-up economy work. So, no, I, I don't think Fidel's passing will have any effect whatsoever. Chris Baker is taking your calls on Travel with Rick Steves with the latest updates on visiting Cuba. Our number, 877-333-RICK. And Amitava is calling from Danville in California. Amitava, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Rick, and hello, Chris. Uh, I'm planning to travel to Cuba later this year, so I wanted to know uh, what would you recommend would be a reasonable itinerary for a 10-day visit, and, and which period of the year would be best from a climate and weather perspective? Okay, great question, very simply answered. Uh, I would say avoid um, June through October because rainy season and too hot. And I would, in 10 days, give myself a minimum four days in Havana. And I would probably then head to Trinidad and Santa Clara and or Vinales and Trinidad. You can't do much more than that in 10 days. You want time to spend a few days in Vinales and or Trinidad and really steep in the historic ambience. Is this colonial kind of charm or, or what kind of ambience are you steeping yourself in? Yeah, thanks. I'm sorry, I should have said that. Trinidad for the uh, colonial ambience. It is a time warp, UNESCO World Heritage, 18th century city in in entirety. And in Vinales, we're talking about the most dramatic physical landscapes and also it's tobacco country. Uh, Forget the tractors, it's all ox carts pulling the plows. Amitava, you've got about 700 pages of details in Christopher Baker's book on Cuba. And thanks for the question. Thank you very much, Rick. And Ross is calling in from Nelsonville in Ohio. Ross, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. I'm a long-time fan. It's great to talk to you. And hello, Christopher. My question for you is, most Americans have probably heard most about Havana. What are some more lesser-known areas of the island that are worth visiting? 
Oh, undoubtedly the Far East. Um, Santiago de Cuba, which is older than Havana, it was the first capital, founded in 1514. It's a hill city, strong French, Haitian, and Jamaican influences historically. It's very, very distinct. It's 85% black, as is nearby Guantanamo. And then near to both of these places is Baracoa, which is the oldest city in Cuba, 1511. And it is surrounded by incredible mountains, and it is a rainforest area. Mm. Uh, and that that area really deserves exploring. Ross, it's fun to dream about going to Cuba, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> Thanks for your call. <laughs> Thank you. Christopher, uh, we know that a couple million people visit Cuba every year, but I would imagine the lion's share of those visitors are, are going to resorts, beach resorts that almost cut themselves off intentionally from the rest of Cuba. Is that a fair thing to say as most of the Canadians and Europeans uh, would be enjoying luxury resorts where the rest of the country feels quite untouristed? You're absolutely correct. Uh, The vast majority of the hotels are along the north coast where the best beaches are found, and many of those beaches are on offshore islands. Most people are escaping the winter snows, of course, be it from Canada or from Russia. And by the way, a lot of Russians go there. Mm -hmm. And yes, they they maybe make one or two days maximum excursions to try and discover Cuba and land away from the beaches. But the vast majority of uh, people should really focus on what Cuba is all about, and that is yeah. the cultural scene, etc. Havana mingling with the Cubans. Oh. You can get a suntan anywhere, let's face it. Yeah, it'd be a shame. I mean, you can go to Mazatlan <laughs> and have that kind of experience, but if you're going to go to Cuba, go to Cuba. Right. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Christopher P. Baker. His guidebook is The Moon Handbook to Cuba. Chris, let's just wrap up our discussion with how the Cubans are taking all of this excitement in the United States about changing approach to tourism to their country and uh, where you think it's all going to lead. Uh, let me tell you, the Cubans were literally, literally hugging each other on the street. Passers-by when the news broke and the bells tolled, probably for the first time since the revolution. Uh, literally, the bells tolled. So that tells you. I think the most important thing vis-a-vis the the change in regs was that it has shifted the entire debate in Congress regarding U.S.-Cuban relations, and there is new energy afoot for ending all the travel restrictions in entirety. Christopher P. Baker, thanks so much, and best wishes with your touring and reporting through your guidebooks on Cuba. Thank you, Rick. It's always a pleasure to be with you. Post your thoughts about what you hear each week on Travel with Rick Steves and interact with other listeners in our radio listener forum. You'll find it in the radio section of ricksteves.com. Next, get ready to celebrate Easter in Andalusia in the south of Spain. Concepcion Delgado from Seville joins us to tell us about the kinds of parades and processions they're having for Palm Sunday and Holy Week. It's Travel with Rick Steves. A lot of people travel with walls up. Bringing those walls down is what allows you to have those moments where you truly connect with new people and cultures. Rosetta Stone can help take down one of the biggest walls, the language barrier. Rosetta Stone is fun to use, you learn fast, and you can use it on your smartphone, tablet, or computer. For a special discount, go to rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Springtime is high season in the south of Spain. The week leading up to Easter is called Semana Santa, or Holy Week. And in the region of Andalusia, it can be hard to find a room because every town puts on religious-themed parades and celebrations. I think they're some of the most exciting events you can experience in Europe, and they even hold Andalusia-style processions in other parts of Spain this time of year. Concepcion Delgado comes to us from Seville to guide us through the big Holy Week festivities in her hometown. Concepcion, welcome. Why is Holy Week such a big occasion in Sevilla? Well, to me, it all starts uh, when you smell the first blossom of an orange tree. Blooming orange trees. See, that's the beginning of it. You and, don't need to wait little, till Easter. Every little uh, piazza has orange trees in, in Sevilla. Every street and square has orange trees, and when you smell the first blossom, you know it's coming. You know it's the announcement of Holy Week, and life goes around that. And it's not only celebrating Holy Week, because in fact, it's only a week. So you cannot celebrate 
that much in a week. So we prepare for that weeks in advance. And so the anticipation and the preparation is a big part of it. It's more exciting than the week itself. How so? Because you have so many arrangements to do to enjoy it in the maximum <laughs> energy and attitude that involves a lot of your energies as well. Is it family? Is it with the children? Is family, it shopping? You're, Is it cooking? Pre- exactly. You're preparing the outfit. You need to think of that weeks in advance because everybody wears new outfit, new clothing on Palm Sunday. If you're parading as a penitent, you need to have your things ready. So maybe you need a new cone for your hood or new shoes or new sandals. <laughs> Wait a minute. If you're parading as a penitent, you need a new cone for your hood? <laughs> Explain this a little bit more. What is a penitent? What is a cone? And what's the hood? Well, it's uh, it's all about the KKK-looking outfit, right? That's but, right, because uh, a lot of Americans, they look at the parade and look yeah. like, who let the KKK out? They you know? feel terrified, but well, we have born with that, so for us it's quite normal. Everybody wears that when parading so, so I would Holy say week. in Holy Week, in Easter time in si. southern Spain, people have been wearing these white narrow cones that look like KKK long before there was a KKK. <laughs> See, right. Okay. Not necessarily white because in the beginning it was black okay. because they were doing a penitency. But uh, with the pass of time, fraternities adopted different colors. What is a, a penitent? A penitent is a member of a fraternity who parades during the Holy Week. Can and be a fraternity a, is a religious organization, a, a group of... It's a group of people, secular people, who decided to gather because they have something in common. Of course, they have a religion in common and they started venerating a statue. And in the beginning, they had a social function and they called themselves brothers and imitate the life of Jesus to the extreme. They also want to suffer as he did. And they started parading hurting themselves. In the beginning, that was the idea. They were flagellating themselves or hurting themselves in different ways. So whipping themselves, See. walking with a heavy weight on their head, Exactly, or stepping on uh, broken glasses and hurting their feet, right. things like those. That was the idea of it. Now, I've been in southern Spain uh, before Easter when the children are walking around in the streets with a bed spring, a mattress on their heads, like 10 children walking, all carrying on their on the back of their <laughs> head a mattress with a coach with one of the fathers. It's like going to Little League Baseball, except they're working on carrying the mattress smartly. What's going on here? Well, they're practicing a little bit. They want to imitate what the adults do, and they have their little processions. Once the Holy Week is over, they'll have the chance of doing that. That will be in May for them. And it's uh, super cute. I it think is, it's, uh, it's super so cute. charming. And Sometimes it's a small procession of three, you know, one carrying the thing, one directing, and one playing a drum or something like that, and that's it. It's all about it. They carry the, the mattress on their heads <laughs> like they're going to carry the float someday. Yeah. Si, si. Now, are these parades, Concepcion, different times of year for different saints' days, or are they only relating to Easter? No, no, we have parades all year long. So you're likely to see this any time of year. See, si. sometimes people ask me, oh, yesterday we saw a parade. What's a surprise about it? I mean, we have a parade every weekend. Of course, the most impressive go during the Holy Week. And that's when the, not only the floats, but the statues, which parade are the most uh, popular. But, uh, because we can admire these beautiful statues in the churches, but we've got to remember they are extractable. They can be taken out of the church, mm-hmm. put on a float, decorated with flowers, and paraded around, but only once a year? Or si, si, that's the point. I mean, statues were made for that, for parading. For that saint's day. Sometimes, yes. Sometimes they existed in a church for years, and then yeah. a fraternity decided to take it out, and it's only once a year. And I get the feeling that there's different people, different neighborhoods have a favorite saint. Like in Chicago, are you White Sox or are you uh, Cubs? In Sevilla, it would be the the rivalry of not baseball teams, but different saints that are taken out on the streets. Mm, Well, not really saints because it's all about Jesus and Mary. Okay. But they're fraternities which have a little competition. My Mary is better dressed than your Mary, you know, something like that. How is your Mary? Well, yours is always the prettiest. I mean, there's no there's no doubt about that. But uh, talking about neighborhoods, for example, we can talk about Triana, no? like across the river yeah. and the city. Yeah. And there was a big competition. There is an Esperanza in Triana and there is an Esperanza in La Macarena. And they were like rivals, no? I mean, rivals, yeah. They are not exactly, but... Uh, but in, there's local pride, see? neighborhood pride. Yeah, exactly. It's Holy Week in Seville and the big April Fair is just around the corner too. Joining us for a look at the spring traditions of Andalusia is Concepcion Delgado from Seville. So when you think of Esperanza, Mm. this is Mary, the weeping virgin, or what is Esperanza? Well, Esperanza, as you know, means hope, and that's what we think of 
So you see this beautiful statue. What does it mean to you when you see the Mary that, that is closest to your family in your, in your neighborhood coming out of the church and entering the parade? What, what goes through your mind and your heart? That means a lot to me and to people in general uh, because uh, it's not only that is your or is, is not your, no, because it's everyone's, but is that Mary comes out and you can pray to her and tell her what worries you and you know she's there to listen to you. But it connects you with generations. To me, that's the most important thing, that your first memories are tied to the celebrations. I don't remember many things I did when I was a child, but I remember every Holy Week that I experienced because I remember the first time I was parading as a penitent or my brother was um, was carrying a float or that year that rained and we couldn't parade or that first year when your father was not there anymore. Those are things that you never forget, and that's what makes it be so special in people's hearts somehow. So somehow you know your earliest memory might be of Mary coming out of the church on the parade, and then you know that your grandmother probably had the same See. love of this moment. Exactly. And it goes back many generations. Exactly. It's so, a powerful thing. See, it's very strong. That's why I think it's something that will never die, because it's all about feelings too. It's not only about your faith or your image or my image, but it's about community. And continuity with the past. Exactly. That's a perfect definition to me. Ho, ho. Paint a picture for me in the beautiful moment of it. That's, um, I, I don't think you can experience that anywhere else in the world. There you are, suddenly music sounds, and it's that music that really touches. You don't know what's happening, but everybody is silent. Parade. It's coming, and there it is. It's an impressive float with that statue of Jesus that you pray to every Sunday, and suddenly there it is. It's just you and that, or it's like Jesus and you, and goes away. And Jesus is up against the dark sky with candlelights all around. The shadows of the cones of the people that are proceeding. The the sound of the feet of the men who carry the float. And all you see under the float are the feet shuffling. That's it. And there might be 20 men under that float. See? Candles melting. See? And And trumpets. And uh, you have been waiting for a whole year for that moment, and suddenly it's gone and makes you go back to reality. This is life. It's an instinct of beauty. But that's what we think life is made out of. And your great-grandparents had that experience, and your great-grandchildren will have that experience. Will have that experience. Or at least that's what we hope. That's why we take kids to all those things since they are little. But it must be in our blood. I don't know why, because kids love it. They feel so attracted to that. And it is a privilege to be there as as a traveler and witness that, respectfully, be part of the celebration. See, I think so. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Concepcion Delgado. We're talking about Holy Week in Sevilla, in Andalusia. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Dennis is on the line from Yokaipa, California. Dennis, thanks for your call. Yes, just a comment about Sevilla and Holy Week. Uh, we stayed in a hotel there, and the parade went right by us with the, the candle carriers. They carry these, gosh, five-foot candles and they parade, and then the float comes, and then the band comes. And I was very impressed with the music. Gosh, they had French horns and bassoons, and and even outdoors, the music was just excellent. It started about four in the afternoon, and then you could walk a few blocks and see other floats and parades, and it lasted well past midnight. And then you go have dinner about one o'clock in the morning, and it was great. It was fabulous. You know, I've been in so many restaurants enjoying a good meal, and then suddenly there's a commotion and there's a parade outside, and you just have to leave your plate and go out there and be part of it. It's just, it sweeps through, doesn't it? Yes, you do. And it's like, I'm hungry, but I can't go eat because I want to watch this spectacle. Mm. And it was terrific. We loved it. We spent several days there and went the year before also. It was just excellent. And you don't really need Uh, a reservation or anything. It just, it engulfs the town. Concepcion, the hardest thing is to get a hotel reservation, perhaps, in Hollywood after that. Yes, we booked, I think, 10 months ahead of time to get the hotel where we stayed. You can drive into town, but the traffic is very restricted in, in the old town, so... Yeah, it's a beautiful thing for people to factor into their travels. And it can be in a small town or in, in Sevilla, which is the most famous celebrations. 
Yes, and the color, the different colors of of robes and candles, and and the next morning you can go out and you can actually see where the parades went because you can follow the trail of wax that's on the cobblestones. That's a beautiful Um, memory. I know what you mean. You go, oh, there was a parade here, and either I missed it or I'll always remember that. And during the parade, you have all these beautiful, adorable children, and they're just really caught up in the excitement of it. Did you find that? Yes. In fact, we had several of the children would come up and give us cards, prayer cards, (laughs) and say, bless you, and it was really interesting that it's the young people and the older people and just everybody's, I guess, into it, as you would say, but it's definitely something worth doing if you can ever schedule your time. Make sure you do it. It's one of those bucket list things you need. I would say so, too. Thanks, Dennis, for your call. Thank you very much. Uh Bye now. Bye. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about Holy Week, Semana Santa in Sevilla. Concepcion, you mentioned that Palm Sunday is actually a a big part of it. So, of course, you've got Palm Sunday, and then there's a different religious event, part of the Passion, the last week of Jesus' life before his crucifixion on Good Friday and then his resurrection on Easter Sunday. How is Palm Sunday celebrated? What is special about Palm Sunday? Palm Sunday is is the beginning, the beginning of the whole celebration. So now you have been waiting for these for weeks. You have been preparing yourself. Now you're ready, and today is the day when you go out and you say, okay, there we go. Let's uh, have fun. And to welcome all the celebration is when people go beautifully dressed. It's the most elegant day of the Holy Week. We go mass in the morning with our olive branches or the palm leaves. To me, it's the cutest day. It's the kids' day. It's when they are more excited because they have one whole week to make their ball of wax grow with the wax falling from the candles. And it's the family day as well. Mm-hmm. And, well, it's the busiest day too, so everything, everywhere you go is crowded, but it's uh, visually perfect. And when the, when the parade passes the convents, I understand the nuns actually sing. Do you, you have a chance to hear this? Yes, many, many cloister nuns. You cannot see them because they cannot leave their convents, but they sing from inside. So you can hear them? You can hear them. So they're cloistered, but that doesn't mean you cannot hear them. Exactly. You cannot see them, you can, but you can exactly. hear Exactly, see. So Concepcion, Semana Santa, by definition, is a week, the Holy Week, from Palm Sunday to Easter Sunday. And uh, Palm Sunday is a bigger deal relative to Easter in Spain than it is in the United States, it sounds like. A lot of people will be planning to go to Spain and enjoy Semana Santa, and their focus will actually be Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Can we finish this discussion about Semana Santa in Andalusia, talking about Good Friday and then Easter Sunday? How do you celebrate that? Well, in contrast to what you may think or believe, Easter should be the celebration Mm -hmm. because Easter is the resurrection and that's the reason why we believe, no? But uh, we don't have that feeling because for us, Easter is the end of everything. I mean, a whole year thinking about celebration and in the end, it's a celebration. So Easter, we have to be happy because Jesus resurrected, but we cannot be happy in our souls because the festival is over. So, for us, Easter is not even celebrated at all. So, Palm Sunday kicks Palm off Sunday. a beautiful week that you've exactly. waited for. Exactly. It's the week you're waiting for, but then by Saturday, you're really depressed. And then Sunday is Easter Sunday. You don't Sunday want to celebrate anything at all. <laughs> so, so, Easter Sunday, you're thinking about only 51 weeks until Palm Sunday. That's right. Oh, and there right. are even bars which start the countdown. They have blackboards and they have their countdown. So, it's... 322 days for Holy Week, and the day after is one day less. That's how it goes. Until Palm Sunday. Exactly. All right. Concepcion Delgado, thank you so much for a better understanding of celebrating Easter and Semana Santa in Andalusia. Thank you. How do you say Happy Easter in Spanish? (laughs) Buena Pascua, but... You don't say it? No. Sad Easter. Carol Taban listens to Travel with Rick Steves each Saturday on WUFT Gainesville from her home in Old Town, Florida. It's a rural part of the state known as the Nature Coast. She saw on the radio section of ricksteves.com that we're always looking not only for travel haiku from our listeners, but also for colorful short essays about places they live. She sent us such an evocative entry describing early morning in her part of Florida, we decided to ask her to read it to us herself. I'm Carol Taban from Old Town, Florida, and this is where I live, Morning Symphony in Dixie County, Florida. It's 5 a.m. 
Our venue is a country porch in a small North Florida town. The stars are spotlights at the ready. Our maestro, the fullest of moons, begins to nudge the musicians to attention. From high in the pines, the owl's opening overture begins. The notes dance on the breeze, enticing the listener to stay for the magic in store. Wild turkeys enter with the sonata, the next part of the orchestration. The owls and the turkeys committed to the symphonic poem prepare us for the roosters. The third component, the andante, belongs to them. A chorus of verse and responses lend an amusing air to the composition. Their capricious crowing alerts us to the impending scherzo, the fourth movement of our masterpiece. Seldom in unison, the pups begin their rhapsody with solos. Each is performed with a tonality unique to their breed and training. The deep basso woof woof contrasts nicely with the tenor yap yaps of the smaller, more delicate instrumentalist. At last, when the listener cannot imagine being more enraptured, the howls of the hunting hounds are a fitting finale and bring a triumphant close to the magnum opus. Amid cries of bravo and pleas for an encore, a cow and donkey delight us with a ballad that has its roots in barnyards all over the world. Our applause continues as the sun raises the house lights. We take comfort in knowing there will soon be a repeat performance with an open invitation for all who care to listen. Take a crack at describing what's special about where you live or write us a haiku poem about the impressions from your travels. You'll find details online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Thanks for studio help to our friends at KUCR Riverside. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You can add your comments or travel reports to our online feedback forum. It's part of the extras you'll find each week in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Support for Travel with Rick Steves comes from Rosetta Stone, helping you learn a new language on your smartphone. Rosetta Stone uses images and games to teach instead of rote memorization. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash ricksteves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. At Rick Steves' online travel store, you'll also find guidebooks and phrasebooks for Spain, Portugal, and every other corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books for Iberia and beyond, visit the travel store at ricksteves.com.